Please turn with me now to Matthew chapter 21, where for a few minutes we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. This is on page 826 of the church Bibles. I didn't realize last week, but last week was our 100th sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. So, uh, I don't know what that means. I hope it means we've not reached the halfway point. Um, but uh, we're uh, in Matthew chapter 21, and this is, of course, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So Matthew chapter 21, reading from verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let us pray. Father, as ever, as we come to study your holy word, now we pray for the ministry of your Spirit. The books that we hold in our hands, the text that is before us, is unlike anything else in the world, for this is the, the breathed out Word of God. God the Creator speaking to us as creatures, and so we are on holy ground. May your Spirit lead us and guide us that we might understand this Word properly, that we might apply it to our lives, and that we might give you the glory. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come this morning to what is really the final section of Matthew's gospel, as Jesus now comes and arrives into Jerusalem. Matthew began his gospel, you remember, by giving us four chapters that set the scene and establish Jesus firmly in our minds as the long-awaited Messiah who had finally come in fulfillment of the prophetic promises to establish the true kingdom of God. And from those first four chapters, Matthew has taken us in the next 16 chapters, along with Jesus and his disciples, to witness Jesus' public ministry that ministry that you remember he bracketed by two serious and solemn sermons. The Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7, and then the Sermon on the Road 
in chapters 18 through 20, in which both sermons he described the high bar that he sets for all who would be his disciples and enter his kingdom by placing their faith in him. But it's now with chapter 20 that we have really come to the to the last section of this gospel as Jesus and his disciples finally enter into Jerusalem. All the way from the high point of the gospel at Caesarea Philippi, where the disciples through Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus has been telling his disciples that it was necessary for him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, to go to Jerusalem. And four times he has warned them that in Jerusalem he will be arrested, and he will be humiliated, and he will be executed, and on the third day he will then rise out of his grave. Now, it's been clear that the disciples have really understood nothing of what Jesus has been saying. His prediction of his death is so far removed from their first century presuppositions that they have struggled to grasp just what Jesus means by all of these things that he is telling them. But as we come to Matthew chapter 21 this morning, with those warnings in, in our minds as Matthew's readers, we come to the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem knowing that the final days are now upon us. With the entry of Jesus, we can say that the end has now begun. The, the disciples may not comprehend what is about to happen, but Matthew has written his gospel in such a way that it is clear to, to us, his readers, that this is really the point to which everything else has been moving. With every declaration that the kingdom of heaven was now at hand in the arrival of Jesus, we, like the disciples, like the crowd, have been waiting for its inauguration. For the last 20 chapters, our sense of, of expectation and anticipation has been rising, and the way that Matthew now begins this final section makes it clear to us that that moment has finally arrived. The public ministry of Jesus is over, and the very thing that Jesus came to do is now at hand. And Matthew brings us into Jerusalem in a way that is very reminiscent of how he began his gospel. You remember that in those first four chapters, Matthew was continually building the bridges for us, showing us clearly, explicitly, how the early life of Jesus was fulfilling the prophetic expectation. Right, if you just go back now and, and flick through the first few chapters of this gospel in your Bibles, you'll notice that, that visually they are interrupted continually by indented sections. Quotes from the Old Testament that Matthew is bringing to our attention so that we don't miss how Jesus has just fulfilled that expectation. And here in this triumphal entry, Matthew really returns to that pattern. 
And he describes for us the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in such a way that it is vividly clear to us that this too is a direct fulfillment of that Old Testament expectation. Remember, Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish first century audience. And he wants them to see that this Jesus of Nazareth is not just another pretender to the throne, but he is actually the one who had been anticipated and described throughout the Old Testament, all the way from the fall in Genesis 3. Matthew slows down his narrative here as as he brings us into Jerusalem with Jesus and his disciples, and he again builds the theological bridges for us because he wants there to be absolutely no mistake in the minds of his readers that everything that we are about to see happen is about to happen exactly as the prophets had foretold. And it's not just Matthew who is careful in how he presents this entry into Jerusalem. It's clear that Jesus is making a deliberately conspicuous entry into the holy capital. It is clear that he has carefully choreographed this definitive moment in his ministry to paint a vivid picture for his followers. And we see that in a couple of ways. First, we see it in the fact that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. We've never seen Jesus ride before. Right Throughout this gospel, throughout the other gospels, there's no record of Jesus riding. He walked with his disciples. He, he, he rode in boats, but he, he never rode on a donkey or any other beast of, of burden. He walked. But now, as he comes to Jerusalem, he, he comes in riding on a, on a donkey's colt. For him to do this now must be a deliberate act. But you understand, this isn't Jesus just getting tired. This is a deliberately symbolic act that is designed to communicate something very specific to his followers. We, we see that even in the way that he gets these donkeys. Right in verse 2, Jesus sends two of his disciples into the village of Bethpage to get a donkey, and it's cold. Now, the fact that Jesus knows that there is a donkey and a colt waiting for him there, and that his disciples will be able to take them simply by saying the Lord needs them, shows us that, that there's been planning involved in this. This isn't just Jesus telling his disciples to go into Bethpage in the hopes that there might just happen to be a donkey, and that that donkey might just happen to have a colt, and if they find them, to go ahead and steal them, and if anyone confronts them, to just give them an enigmatic saying, oh, oh, the Lord needs them. Right? That's absurd. It's clear that only the most gullible of villagers would ever be convinced to part with their animals simply being told that the Lord needs them without any further description of who exactly the Lord is or why on earth He would need to steal these animals. Right? It's better 
clearer, more consistent, I think, for us to understand that this phrase, the Lord needs them, is a, is a kind of password. It is part of a prearranged plan for Jesus to borrow these animals. Now, of course, there's a lot we don't know here. We don't know when Jesus had arranged the use of these animals. We don't know how He had done it, whether He personally had gone and made these arrangements, or whether He had sent a disciple to do it. We don't know if He had paid for them, or if this was a kind of proto-disciple in Bethpage who was already inclined to support the work of Jesus. We, we don't know the details. All we know is that just like the room that Jesus prearranged in chapter 26 for them to take the Lord's Supper in, it's clear that somehow Jesus had made these arrangements. And He had done it because He is setting up a particular scene. It was important that when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for these last days of His earthly ministry, these last days, He will finally establish His long-anticipated prefigured kingdom. It was important that we, when He comes to Jerusalem to do that, that He enter into that city specifically riding on a donkey. And as we read, we see that the crowd of largely Galilean pilgrims who have been following Jesus and His disciples down into Jerusalem on the way to the Passover, they absolutely understand the significance of what Jesus is doing. Remember, this is the crowd of Galileans who Matthew has indicated are already convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. We noted last week in Matthew's statement in chapter 20, verse 29, that as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed them. And that, that is not so much a, a description of direction as it is a statement of devotion. Just like these two blind men at the end of that vignette rise and follow Jesus after receiving their sight, the implication is that this crowd coming into Jerusalem from Galilee knew, knew of Jesus, knew what He preached, knew the miracles that He had performed, and knew that He was the Messiah. And when they see Jesus riding on the donkey, their response is to lay their cloaks on the ground and to put palm branches on the road before Him and cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They, they understand what Jesus is, is doing. They understand the symbolism that Jesus has carefully choreographed and orchestrated. And Matthew, making sure that we, the reader, don't miss the redemptive significance of all that is going on, interrupts his narrative here and explicitly says to us, you understand, reader, just pause a minute, understand all of this is happening in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah was a prophet who ministered to the exiles who had returned from Jerusalem and who were fighting despondency and discouragement in the face of what seemed like an enormous and, and even devastating anticlimax. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel had all spoken of a wonderful return from exile into a wonderful kingdom of God. They would far outstrip anything that had gone before, anything that the, that the world had, 
had seen before. But to these returned exiles to whom Zechariah preached, none of it seemed to have come true. Yes, they were back in Canaan. Yes, they were back in Jerusalem, but they were languishing in the midst of the ruins of Jerusalem, ruins that had lain ruined for 70 years after the Babylonians had devastated that city. Right, you have to understand the city that the exiles came back to. Don't think of so much like Aleppo in Syria, these recently destroyed buildings. Think more of Fort Frederica, ruins that have had moss and plants growing up over them, the nature taking back this ruined city. They came back to this Jerusalem, and they languished in the midst of these ruins, and they strove to carve out a life for themselves in the midst of what was once a lush and abundant land, but was now essentially a a wilderness, and they grew discouraged and despondent. And Zechariah preached to them. And the word that he preached to them was a word of hope that while the establishment of the kingdom of God was not quite how they were expecting it, it was not that God had forgotten His promises. And it was not that God had been unable to do what He had said, but it was that God would fulfill His promises in a way that would be far more glorious than the ever could have expected. The major theme of the book of Zechariah is that a day is coming when God will bring His people into His perfect kingdom in which He will give them perfect rest and in which He will dwell with them without separation or mediation, but simply Emmanuel, God with His people in His kingdom. And in Zechariah 9, the prophet lifts the eyes of his despondent audience, and he tells them of the day when their king will come, and he'll bring all of these covenant promises to this wonderful fulfillment. But paradoxically, he says to them that this mighty king will appear to establish this glorious kingdom, and he'll come riding not on a war horse, not in a chariot. He'll come riding on a donkey's foal. Now, to our minds, that's an image of poverty and weakness, isn't it? Who who rides a donkey? The the poor. You, You think of images of donkeys still being used as beasts of burden, and you think of rural China, You think of India, you think of of Africa. It's the poor who use donkeys because they can't afford anything else. It's the poor who use donkeys as their beasts of burden. But you have to understand that in the ancient world, it was the wealthy who rode on donkeys. But they only did it in peacetime. In war, a king would ride out in front of his troops on the mightiest of the war horses. You've seen these horses, the Clydesdale horses, the Budweiser horses. 
They're intimidating animals when you get up close to them. They're enormous, they're powerful, their hooves are huge, their heads are bigger than you could ever imagine. And a king would ride out on a horse like that, rippling with muscles. It was, it was psychological warfare. Here was the king riding out on, on the, I don't know, the, Ab, do they still have Abram's tanks? I'm not up on my modern army, but riding out in their foremost tanks into the midst of the battle. That's what he would go out on. Or he would ride in a, in a, in a gilded, glorious chariot out into, into war with his army. But, but he only did that in war. In peace, the king rode on a donkey. That was his transport. And so for this king, Zechariah is saying to appear to reestablish Jerusalem, to establish the true kingdom of God in fulfillment of all the covenant promises, riding on a donkey and not a horse, you understand is a picture, not of weakness, it's a picture of absolute dominion and control. This is a picture of absolute authority. So powerful of this, as this king, so assured of his victory, is he does not need to equip himself for battle. It's a foregone conclusion. He doesn't need to ride in a tank. He can go in his convertible. It's, it's done. There's no fighting. There's no question as to whether or not he'll be the winner. This is a picture of absolute power and control and and dominion. It's just like when Solomon rode to his coronation in 1 Kings 1 on a mule. It was a symbol that unlike his father David, who had to fight for his throne, here was Solomon riding a peaceful animal to his coronation. A man who's powerful and in perfect control of his kingdom. What he, what this king Zechariah describes as doing is epic. It's world-changing, literally. He is depicted as overthrowing the most powerful in this world, the kings and the nations who raged against God and His anointed. And in fulfillment of, of Psalm 2, this king is coming to, to crush them like, like, like a piece of pottery against the rod of, of iron. And yet, in the face of it all, he does it, seated not on a war horse, but on a donkey's from that position of power, he will disable all of those who oppose God and his people, and he will establish a kingdom of peace that extends to the very ends of the earth. And as this crowd see Jesus seated on this donkey's colt, they know exactly what it means. They understand the symbolism, and it fits right in with their understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. And so they take their cloaks, and they, and they lay them on the road before Jesus in a posture of acknowledgement of Jesus as that King, and in an acknowledgement of submission to Jesus as that King. They, they lay down their, their cloaks and in, in an impromptu red carpet, in an act that alludes back to 2 Kings 9.13, when the crowd put their garments on the road before the coming of King Jehu. And they take their palm branches, 
palm branches that had become symbols of Jewish nationalism and victory, that it had become part of Jewish, the Jewish tradition of celebrating their prominent victories against their oppressors. They, they lay these symbols before Jesus on the road in the confession that you are the King who has come to release us from all of our enemies and bring us into this kingdom. And they cry out, Hosanna, a Hebrew word that means save, so that the cry that they offer up is Hosanna to the Son of David, meaning, meaning save us, Son of David. It is the petition that now that he is riding into Jerusalem in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, that he would do his messianic work, that he would bring his people home from their exile, and he would establish his perfect kingdom. The actions of the scribe make it clear that they know exactly what Jesus is doing. They understand the scene that Jesus has deliberately set up for them. They understand that by coming into Jerusalem seated on a donkey's colt, Jesus was vividly and dramatically claiming to be Zechariah's promised king, that he was claiming to be that long-awaited greater Solomon the true son of David, come to establish the true kingdom of God. Now, now is the time of salvation. Now is the time when the exile is truly and fully coming to its end. Matthew is, we have seen him do so often. He builds the bridge for us because he doesn't want us to miss this. He doesn't wait for us to make the connection. He explicitly points us out and he, he breaks the fourth wall and he confronts his readers and he says, look, my readers, do you see what the crowd sees? Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. He's doing exactly what Zechariah said he would do. Why on earth would Jesus do this? Why on earth would he enter into the crucible of Jerusalem on a donkey? He's doing it because he's entering Jerusalem as that immensely powerful king of Zechariah 9. And that little detail makes it clear to us that nothing that happens to Jesus from this point on is outside of his control. From this point on, it's going to be easy for us to see Jesus become a victim a victim of Judas' conspiracy, a victim of a corrupt governor, a victim of cowardly disciples. But all of it is introduced by this scene. This sets the context for us, and we understand that this is the power with which Jesus enters Jerusalem. He enters it and undergoes these things, not because He is weak, but because He is incredibly powerful and because it is through these things, not despite these things, that He will establish His kingdom. As Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey's colt, He knew that what awaited Him there was death on a Roman cross. He's told it to His disciples four times already. But He also knew that it would be through that death that His kingdom would be established because it would be there on that cross that He would finally and fully defeat all the enemies of God and His people, 
that he would crush the devil under his feet and he would bring his people home to find rest in his true and perfect kingdom. Let's pray. Almighty God, how we love our Lord Jesus, how we love him, how we stand in awe of him, how we are humbled when we consider his love for sinners like us. For who are we that you should take thought of us? We are worms and not men. But yet in your grace, you cast your affections upon us. And our Lord Jesus rides into Jerusalem to defend us, to defeat our enemies, to establish his kingdom, to, to satisfy his own law against our sin, to do everything that needed to be done to save us, to bring us home, to dwell with you now and forever. Oh, Father, cultivate us heart in us hearts of joy, hearts of wonder, that we would marvel at you and this gospel, and that we would give praise to God. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.